25 years ago, the last chapter began in the tragic Lindbergh kidnapping. A police net closed in on Bruno Richard Hauptmann, ending a two-year hunt for a man who kidnapped and then killed the infant son of Charles Lindbergh. In Hauptmann's New York garage was found $14,000 in marked bills. Welcome to the Bridgeton Beacon for this series on the crime of the century, the Lindbergh kidnapping and the murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. We've got former New Jersey assistant prosecutor Meg McCormick Horner interviewing various authors on the topic. This episode is part one with the author of the book Cemetery John, which is an exploration of his family's unique interaction and relationship with the Lindbergh kidnapping and a perspective on who they believe the actual kidnappers were. So this is Robert Zorn with Meg McCormick Horner. Please enjoy. Other damning evidence, an artist sketch from a description by the ransom go-between. Handwriting specimens that definitely link the Bronx carpenter with the crime. And written on a door, the phone number of Dr. Condon, the innocent agent who paid the ransom. Circumstantial evidence overwhelming in its impact. On March 1st, 1932, Charles Lindbergh's 20-month-old son was kidnapped from his nursery on the second floor of their home near Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, almost a century later, the Lindbergh kidnapping is one of the most famous crimes to have occurred in New Jersey. The trial of Richard Bruno Haltman, ultimately convicted of kidnapping the baby, was called the trial of the century. And the kidnapping eventually led to the creation of what is known as the Lindbergh Law, making kidnapping across state lines a federal crime. Here today to discuss his 2012 book, Cemetery John, the undiscovered mastermind of the Lindbergh kidnapping, is Robert Zorn. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to begin by asking you, how is it that you became interested in the uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping uh, such that it led you to write uh, your fascinating book, Cemetery John. Uh, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I, I, my hands kind of tightened on the steering wheel. So my father was, I mean, although he had a great sense of humor, he was a fellow that was very sober-minded and serious. And uh, so I couldn't imagine what he was going to tell me. He said, well, you remember how I told you that I grew up in a German neighborhood, the South Bronx? He said, I said, yes. Well, I said, well, when I was a kid, uh, a, teen a teenager, there was a man who lived three doors down from us, and he was a German immigrant named John Knoll, and he had come to the States in 1925 and moved to Jackson Avenue, where our family had also just moved in 1925. And my father was born in 1916. So my dad's story starts really in the summer of 1931, in June of 1931, and this fellow, uh, John Knoll, uh, took my dad on excursions. He kind of took my dad on, under his wing. My father was one of six kids. He had five sisters. He was the only boy in the family. 
And one day he invites my dad to go to Palisades Amusement Park in New Jersey, in North Jersey. And this was like, for a kid in the middle of the Depression, this was like going to Disneyland. It was a really big deal. They had the world's largest saltwater swimming pool. John had taken my dad swimming in Yonkers before. Anyway, so they go to this park, uh, which sat at the top of the Palisades Cliffs. And strangely, John does not go swimming there that day. Uh, So my dad goes for his swim. And after he finishes, he showers in the the bathhouse and and changes back into his clothes. And and John and my dad are exiting the park. Well, outside the park waiting for John are two men. One One of them is his younger brother, Walter, whom my father knew. John and Walter lived in the... They rented rooms for $10 a month each from an elderly widow named Emma Schaefer. And anyway, but my dad did not know the other man who to him seemed rather, rather tall. Anyway, the, the men began speaking to, to one another in German, the three men, John, Walt, and Walter. And John knows that my dad doesn't know how to speak German because my grandparents on my father's side had been brought up in the U.S., born in the U.S., and so German wasn't spoken in Zorn home. So John felt free and comfortable about speaking in German in front of my father with with his uh, brother Walter and his third man. But my dad, he's a you know, pretty astute and sharp kid. He was a very very bright fellow who ended up being the first person in his family to go to college and ended up earning a graduate degree at Columbia University and so forth. But Anyway, uh, my dad picks up that John, the third man that uh, is there, John is calling him Bruno. And that they're talking about some place called Englewood. Well, then John does something very strange. Here he's got a, a kid who's 15 years old. He'd never been out of the state of New York before in his life. You know, of course, again, this is the middle of the Depression, and there was no money to be taking family, a family of eight. Uh, on vacations anywhere. And then John d- tells my father, you go on scram. You go on, go on home alone. And of course, my dad said, well, aren't you going to come with me? He goes, no, you go on home alone. So, uh, my father f- was really shocked by this and he watched him go off, uh, John go off with his brother Walter and his third guy, Bruno, that he was calling Bruno. So my dad is ferrying back across and he was a bright kid. He knew how to get back to the, to the Bronx and back home, uh, but he's ferrying across the the Hudson and saying, saying to himself, "What you know? Looking the dark waters of the Hudson, looking back at the Palisades Cliffs and the park and the Ferris wheel at the top." And he said, "What was that all about? Here, my this fellow is supposed to be my neighbor, my friend, and so forth. You know, he's taught me all about stamp collecting, and I help him with his stamp collection. I'm hanging out with him all the time." And here he just ditches me in New Jersey. That This makes no sense at all. Well, you fast forward to December of 1963. Uh, at that point, my father was the chief economist of the Republic National Group of Dallas. My father walks into, he's 47 years old at this point, and he walks into his barber shop the day and night. For, he reaches for a magazine, and off at the top of the stack is a magazine called True. And in it was an article about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Now, when Bruno Hauptmann was caught in September of 1934, this is two and a half years after 
the Lindbergh kidnapping had taken place was the greatest. This was the greatest manhunt in history at that point in American history. The hunt for the the Lindbergh kidnappers and they all that time they were they were looking for a gang. Uh, they were not looking. They were not looking for a, a one person, but they were looking for a gang. They they concluded that multiple people were involved in this thing. So anyway, the the gist of this article was that Halpin was no, no doubt involved in this thing, and he went to the electric chair in 1936, uh, April 1936. But there were likely accomplices that he had had that he never ratted out. Uh, that were never caught. So when Halpin was caught, all of the investigative agencies, the New Jersey State Police, NYPD, J. Edgar Hoover's Division of Investigation, as the FBI was originally called, and the Treasury Department's investigative unit, they all shut down their investigations. So uh, Halpin goes to the electric chair and... Uh, Nobody is is looking for accomplices at this point. So they had their man. They had their man, right? They they had their man. They 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 had spent a fortune, and they were ready to have it done with. Uh, All these investigative units had spent incredible amounts of time and money, (coughs) and uh, they 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 caught Halpin, and they they then uh, made the trial of the century, as you called it. Uh, They made a lone wolf deal, and. Anyway, um, so my dad's reading this article, and he's reading <coughs> about the. Of course, he knew about the name Bruno Halpin; that name was well known. But when my father, when Halpin was caught, my dad was in literally his first month of college. He was the first kid in his family to go to college. He had three older sisters. So anyway, my father's uh, reading about Bruno Halpin, and he's then he's reading about how there was a man calling himself John who had collected the the ransom in a Bronx cemetery. Now there were two meetings between the intermediary man named Condon, uh, John F. Condon, uh, an elderly educator whom my grandfather knew from the Bronx old timers club. And so, uh, so there was a fellow named John who had met with Condon at both Woodlawn Cemetery, where my dad had just buried his own father in August of 1963, and then also one at St. Raymond Cemetery, also in the Bronx. And then my dad is reading about how uh, the Lindberghs had lived in Englewood, New Jersey, before, while they were built with Ann Morrow Lindbergh's uh, very wealthy family um, in a 40,000-square-foot home. Uh, while their own home uh, near Hopewell on 389 acres in the Sourland Mountains uh, was being built. So my dad said, wait a minute, that day in 1931, nine months before the crime took place, a guy named John is talking to a guy named Bruno about a place called Englewood, and wherever they went were going, I couldn't tag along. So my dad ultimately believes that he, he that he he came to the conclusion that cemetery this un, uh, unidentified or improperly identified kidnapper known as Cemetery John who became known as Cemetery John was in fact his neighbor John Knoll. So, so he he read that magazine and the light bulb went off. 
Yeah, that uh, switch, and then then he then he dove in and did the research. And my dad lived. My dad was haunted by his belief that two men had gotten away with murder. And, and my father had tried to reach out to Lindbergh through a mutual acquaintance. Uh, it was a friend of my father's named Robert Anderson, who was the former Secretary of the Treasury under President Eisenhower. And Bob Anderson sat on the board of directors of Pan Am with Charles Lindbergh. And my dad wrote a letter to Lindbergh saying that I know I have uh, uh, very interesting information about that sheds light on the kidnapping. And anyway, Bob Anderson handed this letter to Lindbergh at a Pan Am meeting. And this is probably not long after Lindbergh was diagnosed with lymphoma. And he really didn't want to open, reopen this old wound. What year and, would that have been? That was 1972. Mm. This is 40 years after the kidnapping. Lindbergh died in 1974. And, uh, but Lindbergh kept the letter, and it is in pristine condition in his uh, papers at Yale, where they have 3,000 boxes of the Lindbergh's papers. And I've spent many, 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 many days there, as well as 130 days at the... Uh, New Jersey State Police Museum, where they had a quarter million files on the case and all the, uh, you know, the kidnap ladder, all the ransom notes, the ransom envelopes and all the other uh, artifacts of the case there. Um, so anyway, uh, that is so anyway, my father uh, tried through a close friend of his who was a former Army intelligence officer during World War II spoke fluent German, a man named Herman Traub, who was my dad's best friend uh, from his days at CCNY, who became an attorney in New York. And Traub investigated John and taught, spoke to him, John Knoll, who was then living in New Jersey. And uh, even, again, this was in 1973, even 41 years after the crime, Noel was lying about the timing of his move to New York, um, still acting like someone who had something to hide. So anyway, um, the years went on and my dad and I started to, you know, sketch out ideas for for doing a, a book on this. And um, as it turns out, uh, he died on Christmas Eve of 2006 at the age of 90, about three weeks short of his 91st birthday. And this is one of, you know, this is one thing my father really wanted to have done. It wasn't for publicity purposes, but he believed that the telling of his story would bring a measure of justice to the case. Anyway, but I held my dad's hand um, and said, Dad, I, you know, I'm going to take up your investigation and someday tell your story to the world. And at this point, he was too weak to speak. But he he looked up into my eyes and smiled and squeezed my hand, and I knew he was happy. So that, Meg, is how I got involved in this story. Hey, thanks again for listening in. And this is just a quick reminder that the best place to check the show out and see all the video episodes, in this case it's an audio episode, but we do have more information about the authors and their books, and it's all at BridgetonBeacon.com. And, and you did just that. You, you uh, continued his work to find the truth of what happened. He, so he began his um, kind of investigation, so to speak, in the early 70s 
Uh, but he didn't tell you the story until 1980. Am I? Is that accurate? Uh, no, it was 1960. Well, 1963 when he came across the information. Right. But when, but when and you and were, he, uh, yeah. And he was, you know, he had it in the back of his mind. And John had given him a lot of stamps, uh, Lindbergh theme stamp. My, John mm-hmm. taught my dad all about stamp collecting. How old my was dad, John? What was the age difference between John and your father? Well, John was born in 1904, and my dad was born in 1916. So when when the crime was committed, John was a 27-year-old man, and his brother Walter was 23. Okay, so he's your your dad was 15. And so 1963, your dad reads uh, the article in True Magazine as he's sitting in the barber shop in Dallas at the age of 47. Light bulb Correct. kind of goes off, and he begins... Uh, his quest to kind of find the truth. Got it. Amazingly, one of the amazing parts of this story is um, I was able to, you know, there was only so much information that could be found out about John and Walter Knoll because they were never suspects in the case. There's quarter million files at the New Jersey State Police Museum uh, where, I, as I mentioned, I've been there probably 130 times doing research. Um so I had to, you know, go through ship records and immigration records and documents and applications to become a citizen and all, all this kind of stuff. And I was able to find, you know, some stuff that was pretty um, compelling. Like, for example, the first time Noel ever goes back to Germany, he left Germany in January 1925. And the first time he goes back to Germany, he goes back in splendor on the SS Manhattan. Um, and he makes his return on, he leaves Europe to return to the States on February 13th, 1935, the very day that Bruno Hauptmann is convicted in a New Jersey court of murdering uh, Charles Lindbergh's baby. So the very day, at, at which point, obviously, from following the international newspapers, this was this this case exploded internationally. I mean, Lindbergh was by far the most famous person in the world. This was by far the most famous child in the world. And so uh, at that point, Noel knew for sure that uh, Hauptman did not rat him out on the witness stand. So, I mean, I, I found several details like that that were very compelling. But it wasn't enough. And so uh, the only the only option I really had was to go to his family. Mm-hmm. And um, and through nephews, I found out I got his obituary and found out that he had had a sister named Agnes Breilink who lived who had lived in Mount Clemens, Michigan. And then I got her obituary. And then from that. I got um, found out that she had three sons who were still alive. And um, I, you know, it was this was one of the more difficult cold calls I ever had to make in my life. But I call, ended up calling her, her son Rudolph or Rudy, as he is now, was known. And, uh, you know, of course, I couldn't tell them, say that, I, you know, my, hey, my dad thought he thinks your, your uncle killed the Lindbergh's child. Uh, so mm-hmm. I had to. You know, I had to just say that, you know, I, I, I got him on the phone and, uh, and I said, is this Rudolph Briling? He said, yes, this is Rudy Briling. I said, 
Rudy, um, may I ask, are you the son of Agnes? Well, you know, well, yeah, I sure am. I said, well, man, are you, that would make you the nephew of John and Walter Knoll? He goes, yeah, did you know him? I said, no, but my father did. He grew up in the Bronx three doors down from when John helped him with his stamp collection and so on and so forth. And could I, you know, I was just wondering, could I come meet you? And so he invited me to come to his home. And as it turned out, my best friend from my school in Dallas, St. Mark's, lived in nearby in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And uh, Rudy and his wife, Sharon, were in uh, Macomb, Michigan. And uh, anyway, so I get invited to dinner. And Rudy gives me a big handshake. He has his whole family to invite him, invites me over. And uh, his wife, Sharon, comes up and gives me a great big hug at the door. I'd never spoken to her. And I found that was a little bit odd, but we've, we've ended up becoming the closest of friends. Anyway, I ended up getting information about John. Uh, I mean, he was a very, very strange fellow. I got photographs of him. It is a dead ringer to the police sketch that was done of Cemetery John. And through Rudy, I ended up meeting John's daughter-in-law, uh, John's only son, with whom he had virtually no relationship, uh, had di- had recently died. But I went to Tucson, Arizona to meet John's daughter-in-law, Adrian. And through that, I got this photograph of John sailing on the SS Manhattan in splendor, uh, uh, dated in December of 1934, right before Halpitz to go on trial. And then I got another photograph of John from Adrian that showed that he had a deformity in his left thumb, which was the most prominent uh, feature described by the intermediary of Cemetery John. Let's switch gears uh, for a minute and talk about uh, what you learned about the uh, the day of the kidnapping, the baby was put down to sleep and um, I guess had a had a had an early nap time and then would be woken up for dinner and then put back to to bed for the night. Um, and shortly thereafter was discovered uh, missing by uh, the nursemaid, Betty Gal. Um, yes, at 10, at 10 o'clock. Yes, right. that was her, her time to. It was that was her time to uh, check on the child, right. and some indication that they thought perhaps Charles Lindbergh had played a prank. He was apparently known for his pranks, um, and uh-huh. then uh, shortly uh-huh. shortly thereafter, a ransom note was found. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the ransom notes um, and. You know the the initial investigation um, and how those ransom notes uh, tie in to uh, the 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 idea that John Knoll was in fact uh, involved with Haltman. Well, I could get into very deep detail about this, but I will from the, from the beginning I will just say that there was a symbol in the in in the ransom notes, uh, um, there were 15 notes in in total, and there were they there was a symbol on wrote notes number one, two, four, six, and seven, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and fourteen, and it was a symbol composed of two. Uh, it was called a signature, 
uh, it was referred to as a signature in uh, the ransom notes. It was a, there were two interlocking blue circles that were stamped onto the page. Uh, they are the, exactly the size of half dollars. And in the area of intersection, it was a uh, mark made with a cork. I would say it is between the size of a dime and the size of a pin. Uh, you, know, you know, you'll read books about it. There's, I've never seen it accurately described. There are two, there are two little lines that are in the circles, one in each circle outside the area of intersection. And there are three holes punched through the uh, the signature. One that pierces the one that pierces the red dot uh, and cork mark, and then the other two to the uh, just outside the edges of the blue circles. And so this was a way that Lindbergh could know, and the police could know that they were dealing with the bona fide kidnappers of their son rather than with copycats. Where uh, where were the ransom notes discovered? Well, the, the well the, the the first one was left on the windowsill of the baby's nursery, and then the others were then mailed from different locations. Um, uh, just you know, again, John Knoll is a, a a philatelist, a stamp collector. This this is his great passion. And he knows all about cancellations and, you know, that he's going to confuse people by mailing some from the Bronx, some from Brooklyn, some from Manhattan and so forth. So that's that that also is, uh, you know, a fact that. That <clears throat> certainly a philatelist, it's a, something a clever philatelist would have done. What's interesting to me is that, you know, in today's day and age, those notes could have been analyzed for uh different types of forensic evidence, DNA, et cetera. And obviously this, this all occurred well before any of that. I'm interested in how the investigation and the trial would have uh, been different had the crime happened today. Um, so the, the, the case, though, was very dependent on handwriting analysis, correct? Yeah, the, 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 well, the, the, the most damning things to uh, Altman were, were, of course, he's found with $14,600 of the $50,000 ransom. And this was uh, most of the money was squirreled away in secret compartments. Most of the money was squirreled away in secret compartments in his garage. Not a good fact for him. Pardon me? It's not a good fact for him, right? No, not yeah. a good fact at all. Yeah. And also, there were... The, the, Hammond was a carpenter, and he was a he was a very talented carpenter. I mean, he was a very um, he was a very he was, you know he he was not the imbecile that a lot of people have have portrayed him to be. This was a very inventive device that he created. You couldn't have found anything like it in the Sears or Montgomery Ward catalogs of the day, which was the the equivalent of Amazon back then. Um, but the ladder was made in sections that could be transported in his 1930 Dodge DD sedan so that the sections would nest. There were three sections that nested into one another and they could be fit into 
his sedan to go from the front windshield to, to the rear window with a few inches to spare. And they were connected, the sections were connected with dowel pins. As it turned out, only two of the sections were needed. And the third unused section that was called rail 16 was one of the rails. And as it turns out, that rail was once shown, uh, there was a wood expert named Arthur Kaler who came from Wisconsin to to uh, do forensic work on the, on the ladder. And Kaler determined that this rail 16 was once part of the same piece of wood as a floorboard in, in Halpin's attic. There was a little gap in between, but you could see where the wood grain, the, the, the lines of the wood grain would match up. So this was a very, 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 very uh, damning thing for, for Halpin as well. And then uh, when Lindbergh, Lindbergh on the night that the ransom was paid, drove the intermediary Condon to St. Raymond Cemetery. And from a distance, and uh, there was a man inside the cemetery calling out for Dr. Condon. He said, hey, doctor. Uh, and anyway, Lindbergh is catty corner, uh, and he doesn't, he's, he's a fellow who doesn't have good hearing, for one thing. For all those years of being in open cockpit planes, I've spoken to his, his daughter, Reeve, about this. And she, you know, she, she said he was, you know, kind of almost deaf and, you know, in one ear. And, you know, he, he always would ask her to enunciate more clearly and so forth. But he did not have good, his, his hearing was not good. But then, you know, to, you know, years later, so this would have been April of 1932 when Lindbergh hears this. And then, at the trial in uh, January of 1935, Lindbergh said that was Halpin's voice, and that for and that was that was really really um, really really bad for Halpin, obviously, uh, to have have this very sympathetic figure, the father, um, say that that was Halpin's voice. Where there, it, that this when he had earlier and said there's no way he'd be able to identify it, then he changes his, his tune and, and says that that's Halpin's voice. The intermediary... Uh, which, is, and, which is, by the way, a, a piece of uh, testimony that likely would never be admissible today. Yeah, well, and, 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 the, and the defense attorney didn't challenge it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the defense attorney did a very poor job as well. So... Right. Um, Hauptman was really in, in rough shape. Who explain to me who uh, Condon, Doctor Condon, was and why he was chosen as the uh, as the intermediary and and was the meetup coordinated with the police or how, how did that how did that transpire? If you can explain that for our listeners, sure. Uh, Doctor Condon was in his early seventies. He was a, a retired semi-retired educator. He had been a principal in Bronx schools for many years. My grandfather knew him kind of, he was kind of a big blowhard. My grandfather referred to him as an old coot. They were in this Bronx old timers club together. Uh, It was kind of a social organization of men that had been in the Bronx for a long time. Anyway, uh, Condon 
was outraged that Lindbergh's child was kidnapped. And so he had a relationship with the editor of the Bronx Home News, which was the newspaper that my dad uh, was a uh, newsboy, a paper boy for. And anyway, uh, Condon writes a letter to the editor of the Bronx Home News uh, saying that he'd like to be helpful in returning this child to his parents and offer a thousand dollars of his own money, so on and so forth. Well, um, the Bronx Home News then publishes a page one little squib. I mean, just a tiny, a tiny little, you know, tiny little squib in the lower right hand corner of the front page, saying that Dr. Condon will offer offer to. Uh, act as an intermediary in the case. This isn't, that isn't exactly what he did, but that's what the newspaper said. And uh, anyway, again, my father is the guy that is the kid that is delivering the newspaper in the area, so he's dropping off copies uh, to uh, John Knoll. Uh, and so anyway, Knoll reads this uh, this squib in the newspaper and writes a letter to Condon and uh, saying you may act as the intermediary. Lindbergh has said you know, he wanted to have some mobsters get involved and be the intermediary. And one of the ransom letters said we're not going to accept any any intermediary on you from your side. You know we're gonna, we're the ones in control. Um, and so John Knoll reads this, or the kidnappers read this, and they write they write a letter. The kidnappers write a letter to Condon saying that he may act as the, the go-between. And then he writes a, a letter to, to Lindbergh uh, saying, you know, uh, uh, create a, you know, a list of instructions uh, to follow. And, and all so, these letters appear to be in the same handwriting? Uh, probably. Mm-hmm. probably. I'm not a mm-hmm. handwriting expert. Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, the first letter looks, I mean, it looks like the indifferent, the, the work of an indifferent pupil in a, th- a fifth-rate grammar school um, might have been done with the opposite hand. Who knows? My, my sense is that Noel likely dictated the letters to Houtman mm-hmm. and then addressed the envelopes himself uh, and then uh, mail- and took charge of mailing them. That's my, that is my uh, best estimation of what happened. Um, there was actually a, a very high-tech, uh, sophisticated software program that was developed by a uh, software expert at the University of Buffalo, Dr. Sargur Srihari, and the Knowles handwriting was was uh, compared to the handwriting on the ransom envelopes, and there was a 96% probability that Knowles wrote those. But uh, wow. I don't. I don't think that he wrote the. Uh, I. I think he most likely dictated the letters to Halpin. That's that. That's what is. And, and you know the the handwriting analysts in the Lindbergh case said that this was hand, Lindbergh. That was, that was Halpin's handwriting in the, in the in the ransom notes. But anyway, so um, the uh, so Condon calls up the Lindbergh residence late late in the night 
and says he's got this letter, and then he describes this this strange symbol in the lower right hand corner, and they know it's immediately that this is this is the right people. So Condon goes out to the the Lindbergh home very late at night, gets there pat, well past midnight, and Lindbergh sees that the symbol matches that of the earlier ransom notes, and he uh, agrees to have Condon be the intermediary. So that's how Condon got involved. Was uh, was there only the one? Uh, I'll call it a meetup, so to speak, to uh, to give the ransom money over, or was there more than one meetup? There were two. the The money had not yet been assembled, and uh, but Condon thought that the uh, it was a good idea to go ahead and meet with the representative of the kidnappers anyway. And so he did, although they didn't have the money. So they met the first time at Woodlawn Cemetery, and um, John Knoll was inside the cemetery. John was inside this. It's and again, this is a magnificent cemetery. Anyway, um, John gets spooked by a, a guard inside the cemetery and leaps over, does an amazing leap over the gate. Uh, the front gate at the corner of 233rd and Jerome Avenue and runs across the street into Van Cortland Park. So anyway, uh, John agrees to send the, the baby's sleeping suit, which he had taken off the baby. Uh, and uh, he said, that, that way you'll know that we have it. And of course, this is not proof of life. And uh, anyway, they send the sleeping suit and uh, they arranged to have a second meeting at the, at the second meeting at St. Raymond Cemetery in the Bronx is where the $50,000 is is uh, handed over. And that was the total amount of ransom money that was provided to the uh, purported kidnappers, correct? Correct. They they had raised it from 50 to 70 and then Condon at the second meeting <laughs> negotiated John down from seventy to fifty, and which infuriated the, the the Treasury Department individuals because he took out the fifty dollar four hundred fifty dollar bills, which would be the most uh, difficult to pass. And they, they were they were they, these were all gold certificates, and which ultimately after. President Roosevelt uh, took office and got us off the gold exchange, uh, gold standard. Um, these, it became illegal to, to hold, have all these ransom notes, uh, excuse me, the, these gold certificates mm-hmm. and gold coin. And so this was part of the, the Treasury Department's brilliant strategy, even though at the time of the kidnapping, they were not illegal, but they, they were hoping that this, would, this was what would happen, and sure enough, it did. And Houtman was ultimately caught passing a $10 gold note at a ga- Warner Quinlan gas station in Upper Manhattan. With and uh, the gas station attendant became a little suspicious of Houtman, and he wrote down the license plate for you 1341 on the back of it, and ultimately that got traced back to Houtman. That's how he got caught. Were law enforcement involved in the? Two meetups at all? No. Lindbergh refused to allow. Uh, he just wanted his child back. He didn't care about 
the pros prosecuting if he got his child back he was going to be happy of course the, the child uh, was uh, was was long dead by then uh which obviously he did not know but uh no he refused mm -hmm. to allow the uh authorities to get involved and of course you would not never be able to do that well i was just going to say i mean were law enforcement aware of what he was doing because if so they it does seem like they deferred and and understandably so to some extent looking back but i don't i don't think that that would um that would be permitted now today no clearly not so um did condon did dr condon testify at the trial he did interestingly when he when Halpin got caught he said no this is not the man but the prosecutor got a very ambitious uh young guy 39 year old guy named david willance still there's a huge law firm in uh, new jersey bearing his name uh this was a very big deal for him he wanted to become a big democratic party uh kingpin and kingmaker and uh he was going to do whatever whatever it took. uh and so he ended up uh changing his tune and he was i'm sure he was presented with a lot of evidence that showed that Con that Houtman was involved the ladder the money handwriting and so forth so he changed his tune in, in what way on the stand or well he, he, he said that john is bruno richard Houtman on the stand so um he completely changed his tune. He he he. Uh, he had previously given a a statement yeah, indicating I mean, otherwise. It, it, yeah, I mean, so so he did that. And that was uh, Hauptman had just been shaking his head as he's watching this. I mean, wow. this is a nightmare. a nightmare. And there's so many there's so many laws now rules now related to uh, out of court identifications, in court identifications, etc. So that's another. Just yeah. in, interesting observation as to how the trial may have gone differently had it been held uh, today. Uh, you know, this evolution of these uh, identification type of laws. Uh, that's well, that, one thing there is not there's no electric chair and the, there's no uh, death penalty in New Jersey now. Well, that's that is true. That is true. Hopman yeah. Hopman ever give a statement? Oh, uh, he said. Uh, well, he, he proclaimed his innocence to the end. Um, right. As did his wife clear. till her death. Well, it's very clear. I mean, he, I don't think he was he was convicted 100% on circumstantial evidence. I don't think he thought he was going to get convicted. Mm -hmm. And so then he would have had, if he had, and if he had then confessed to having been involved in this thing then he would have had to tell his wife i've been lying to you all, all along he would have then lost the support of the german american community which had supported him greatly they would have thought he was a, a rat and then but he was also very concerned about his family name and his name of his he had, a, he had his own toddler son at the time who was born in 1933 the year after the kidnapping and he wanted his his son to believe that he had been that he had been uh, unfairly, unjustly convicted, wrongfully convicted, and for the rest of her life, Anna Halpin tried to clear his name, with no great success. Uh, but uh, this was what was told to this Manfred Halpin all his life. 
trial of the century. Wow. Well, thank you so much, uh, Robert, for sharing uh, what led you to this fascinating story and um, and and the research that you uncovered. It's um, I I as I shared with you before we started recording, just became interested in in this because I am a former prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney in New Jersey and and wanted to do a series on this podcast, New Jersey Criminal Podcast, about the most famous uh, case in New Jersey, the trial of the century that happened right here. And so I'm just kind of scratching the tip of the iceberg here in my, um, you know, education on this case uh, and, and had a general idea of how I wanted to go about learning about it. And I thought the best way to do it would be to speak with speak with the experts. And so I'm just so grateful for you, uh, to you, for uh, sharing the story. I um, I would encourage my listeners to read Cemetery John, the undisco- Undiscovered Mastermind of the Lindbergh Kidnapping. Uh, and Robert, you are just so well-known and well-respected on this topic. And I um, I'm honored that you took so much time to walk us through uh, your story and, more importantly, you know, the story of the kidnapping and, and murder of Charles Lindbergh's child. Well, and my pleasure. So nice to, uh, to be with you today. And uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was, a, it was a joy and a pleasure. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about uh, New Jersey true crime and history. Come back for our next conversation with Judge Lisa Perlman and her book, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Suspect Number 1, The Man Who Got Away. The link to uh, purchase the book is just below the episode on this page here at thebridgetonbeacon.com. But if you're listening in iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, it's at the very top of the descriptive texts. We'll take you to the bridgedandbeacon.com so you can learn about the book, learn about the author, purchase the book. Thanks for listening in. We hope you come back for our conversation with Judge Lisa Perlman in our next episode. 